court, la cour. Yes, good morning, everyone, and welcome back to the courtroom. Uh, it's delight, delightful to see counsel in the courtroom as opposed to on that big screen at the back. Today's case is the matter of Andre Aaron Gerard versus Her Majesty the Queen. Jonathan T. Hughes for the appellant. Morning. Jennifer A. McClellan, QC, and Mark Scott, QC, for the respondent, Her Majesty the Queen. Yes, please, Mr. Hughes. Before I begin, I understand the direction was that we're able to remove our mask when making submissions. I'd just like to ask your permission to be able to do that. That's fine. Thank you. This appeal centers around the issues of ap proper application of the test in WD, as well as the elements that can be used in making findings of credibility. Um, Many of the cases that uh, the respondent relies on also address the issue of sufficiency of reasons, uh, but as you'll see in my submissions, I, I'm not saying that the trial judge's reasons in this case were insufficient. Uh, I think they painted a very clear roadmap of where this judge made her findings. Uh, but to borrow the analogy from Labucan, uh, if her reasons were the roadmap of how she came to these findings, uh, I think they had also revealed that she made a number of unauthorized stops along the way. The two matters that are, are before the court this morning somewhat blend into each other, so I intend to deal with them a bit simultaneously. Um, but I think it makes the most sense to lead off with the issue of the assessment of credibility. Um, the majority of the Court of Appeal in Nova Scotia found a distinction between this case and the decision in Cook, which uh, dealt with similar issues. Uh, respectfully, I, I submit to this court that the distinction is a distinction without a difference. Uh, I certainly appreciate that in this case, it was a specific defense theory that the complainant was either lying or fabricating or exaggerating and that the trial judge was required to address those in her reasons. Where I part from the majority of the Court of Appeal and agree with Justice Bryson in dissent is what use can be exactly made of that. Uh, I agree with Justice Bryson and uh, effectively within the framework of, of Justice Pachaco from KISS that along the spectrum of finding of credibility, um, effectively uh, these anterior issues or these secondary issues move the needle no farther than the neutral point. They can't be used to bolster a complainant's credibility, which is what I say that the trial judge unfortunately did here. Um, This is also a bit distinct from the, uh, the, the related case of uh, MHL that the respondent cites in their fact and which also deals with effectively the same issues and when you actually look at the, the language of the decision, uh, it, it, it's almost identical to that in this case. However, in MHL, the majority of the Nova Scotia Court of Appeal found that in that case, the, jump, the judge didn't automatically make the jump from assessing the credibility to guilt, which I say that she did here. Uh, and I say that for a number of reasons, that throughout her decision, 
when you look at it in the totality, as much as she had the correct roadmap, she correctly stayed, uh, stated WD. She correctly reminded herself that uh, evidence can't be considered in isolation. But when you actually look at where she goes with this, is right off the bat, she says, what can I assess to find credibility in this evidence? And the first thing that she goes to is lack of animosity between the complainant and the appellant. She then, a few paragraphs later, says that her explanation of her statements to the police were plausible. She continues beyond that and says that she has no motive to lie or that there's no evidence before her that the complainant has a motive to lie. Uh, and finally, she, she comes to this issue of the lack of embellishment. All of these things were identified by Justice Pachaco in KISS as things that cannot move the credibility scale into the positive. There are things that can be used to determine whether a witness is incredible if there's evidence that there is a motive to lie or that there is uh, evidence of fabrication or that there is animosity between them. Uh, Justice Pachaco even goes so far to say uh, standing up to a vigorous cross-examination can't be used, uh, again, to move the needle past the neutral. Uh, again, I think it's clear from the trial judge's decision in this case that she, in fact, does that. She makes these positive findings of credibility. So when you get through her decision, she, she ultimately comes to this conclusion that because, and, and you can see this very clearly, uh, it's at tab two, page 11 of my condensed book, where she gets into this of her decision, where she clearly says that the complainant is so uh, sufficiently reliable that effectively the, the defendant cannot raise a reasonable doubt. And again, we get into this blending of the issues. She uses these make-weights, as uh, Justice Pachaco says, to make these positive findings of credibility on behalf of the complainant and then she turns around at the end and says well I find her evidence to be reliable I find her to be a credible witness I then turn to see if there is reasonable doubt in the defense as evidence and that's where I say she gets into this second error of assessing the complainants evidence first using these make weights as Justice Pachaco uh, and the court in Alicella uh, identify in saying... Are you saying that, uh, just to be clear, are you saying that considering the uh, evidence of the complainant first is a problem, or is it that the manner in which it was assessed is the problem, or both? I would say it's the manner that in which it's assessed. So in dealing with some of the cases like Veridin and uh, some of the other cases that deal with the order in which it appears in the judge's decision, I think that that is a little bit of a red herring because as I understand it, and, and certainly uh, there are members on this panel who, who were present for Veridin, uh, Justice Karakasan is writing the decision for it. What I understand that to be is that dealing with that in that order in terms of which a judge uh, brings the findings of fact doesn't necessarily mean that there is a shifting of the burden. So there's no issue in terms of how the judge lays out her findings in terms of the decision. The issue here is that it's not just that she, she outlines her findings with regards to the complainant before she outlines her findings in regards to the respondent in this case. I think it's that she actually makes the finding that the complainant is credible before she turns to the defendant to say, well, can his evidence raise a reasonable doubt? And again, that's that comes a bit from the uh, CLY decision as well. That, but that Mr. Hughes, if just to pick up on my colleague's point, so the, the 
if you look at the reasons given, if you look at page 42, for example, the judge not only is mindful of the fact that she's, that, uh, that she shouldn't um, come down with a final decision on Ms. Day's evidence because it came first, but that it also shouldn't be done in isolation. So line 13, regarding Ms. Day's evidence, no conclusion as to its credibility, reliability, believability, or its acceptance can be made until all of the evidence has been considered and it has been tested against all the evidence. I find, so, so you know, it, it, she, not only did she state the law properly, she reminded herself of the pitfalls that you quite rightly point to that, that could undermine a, a finding of credibility and, and didn't fall into them according to the, your colleagues on the other side. What's your answer to that? Uh, well, thank you, Justice uh, Kezer. I, where I submit that she goes wrong is I, that's what I meant earlier when I said that she had the correct roadmap. She outlined all of these proper issues. But when you look at her reasons as a whole, you can see that she makes these findings and, and as much as she says that she, she didn't make the finding of credibility for the complainant in isolation, uh, when you look at the, the bulk of the rest of her reasons, it's clear that it seems that she actually did, that she goes through and says, well, why do I find her, her credible? And we see this right at the outset of her decision once she delves into this by saying, well, how can I find, you know, what can I uh, assess to determine whether this complainant is credible, defense counsel uh, at trial uh, attempted to bring a number of issues in terms of her reliability or credibility. What can I do? First, there is no animosity. So even, even though she is correctly saying that it can't be considered in isolation, she says that at, uh, she says in her decision, I find no reasonable doubt in the evidence of the complainant. She also says, I find her to be reliable, but that doesn't end the matter. I then turn to see if the defense can, or the evidence of the defendant or some of the other witnesses can raise a reasonable doubt. I think when you look at that, I think that that reveals what her true analysis was, and I think that that's, that's very revealing in terms of how she got there. Um, so notwithstanding uh, the correct recitation of the law, and a couple of reminders uh, that it, it has to be considered as a whole, I think when you look uh, into the decision and you read it as a whole, I think it's clear that she, in fact, does something quite differently. And this is exactly what Justice Bryson picked up on uh, in the dissent. Uh, I think he phrased it uh, as best as could be in saying what the judge said she did and what she did were, in fact, two different things. I guess I go back to the days as a trial judge, and I have to confess that I quite regularly would say the witness gave his or her evidence in a straightforward manner. There was no embellishment. Um, there was no sort of, um, you know, attempts to uh, move away from the questions as opposed to answering in a straightforward manner. I guess that was all, that wasn't all wrong. I, 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 I will stand by it today. The really issue is how much weight you can put on it whether you can use it as a make weight or just look at it as a factor in your overall assessment of credibility. You would not, I don't think, suggest that if a trial judge found that the witness was embellishing their evidence and that they were argumentative and that they weren't straightforward and so on, 
that the trial judge could not take that into account in rejecting as a factor in rejecting their credibility. You wouldn't say that, would you? No, absolutely no. not, Justice Moldaver. So, so I, I just find this whole thing so kind of almost esoteric. Trial judges have enough trouble explaining why, why they believe someone and why they don't or why they have a reasonable doubt or don't without getting so, I'll call it, Talmudic about the whole thing. I mean, so, so dancing on heads of pins and stuff. It just it doesn't work that way. Well, I don't think it's necessarily that fine, Justice Moldaver. I, th I think um, Justice Pachaco and the court and Alicella uh, address that very issue right on the head. Certainly, Justice Pachaco uh, addresses the, the trial judge in that case's uh, use of the words, the preponderance of probabilities in terms of assessing credibility. But um, Justice Pachaco then goes on at paragraphs 52, 53, 54 in, in saying that as much as these are things that can be considered in the, the total matrix of the assessment of credibility, these extra makeweights can't then move the needle into the positive. So you can look at it and you can say the defense has raised the theory that this witness is fabricating or lying. I make no finding of that. There's no evidence before me that this witness is embellishing or lying or uh, has, you know, has not withstood a vigorous cross-examination. But where I think Justice Pachaco and, and, the, and the court in Alisela get it right is saying those are factors to consider in terms of the assessment of credibility, but they can't move you into buttressing a witness's credibility. And with prior, and prior consistent statements, we've been through this. This is not new stuff. We've been through all this before, and and so I mean I think if that's what you're saying that, you know, a prior consistent statement is admissible sometimes, uh, as a defense as opposed to a, as a shield as opposed to a sword. If that's what you're saying, I don't think probably anybody is arguing with you. But when your client takes a position, when your client raises motive, when your client puts his whole puts all his eggs in the motive basket, in effect. Um, surely, the, and I'm, I, there obviously there's no obligation on your client to prove motive or anything like it, but surely the trial judge has the right to assess that and give reasons for rejecting it. Otherwise, what are trial judges for? Well, absolutely, and that's, that's what I meant earlier when I said that the, there is that distinction between this case and the case in Cook where uh, the Court of Appeal found differently. Uh, in this case, the majority obviously says that the, uh, what was impermissible in Cook was permissible in this case. And I agree insofar that the, the trial judge in this case was required to address the, the defense theory of uh, fabrication. She was required to touch on it in her reasons. But where I say that she fell into error, and I agree with Justice Bryson, is saying that she then used these in the exact way that Justice Pachaco uh, cautioned us against to say, well, these things make her more credible because I find that she didn't have a motive to lie, that I didn't, that she wasn't embellishing, you know, that she didn't have animosity towards the the uh, defendant. Mr. Hughes, I, I guess reading, looking at the reasons, she she discusses the evidence in quite a bit of detail. She talks about how it. Um, she talks about all the positive indicia of credibility. And then she talks, then she specifically says that Mr. Hutchison, counsel for, for um, the accused, certainly challenged her accuracy and memory. 
He then goes on to deal with uh, lack of animosity, about the plausibility, and she said, there's no evidence before me that she was motivated to lie or made previous false claims. Again, answering the submissions of counsel. He then, she then goes on to say, Mr. Hutchison suggested a number of inconsistencies and lack of independent evidence. And again, she, why, I'm just having trouble with the idea that she used it as make weight. There were, she talked about the evidence, she made certain observations about the quality of the evidence. She makes a point of saying these were the submissions that were made by the defense to undermine her credibility and essentially at the end of the day says, well, I don't accept any of them. I'm not, I just am not following why you say where in the judgment is it clear that she is, is does it suggest that she is using them as a make weight, as a positive, for, to make a positive finding of uh, credibility. So when we look at, thank you Justice Karakasanis, when we look at the, the judge's decision toward the end, when she gets into summarizing, um, because she, the order that she deals with is obviously is dealing with how she makes findings for the, the complainant first, then she deals with the, uh, the findings that she makes in terms of the defendant in this case. The, the issue is that when we get past that, she says that she rejects the defendant's evidence, not because it's inherently incredible or anything like that, she gets to this point and says, I find that she, the complainant in this case is so uh, significantly reliable that anything that the defense has said cannot possibly raise a reasonable doubt. Isn't that a different, <laughs> is, isn't that a different submission? It's one thing to say that he improperly used uh, motive and so on as a make weight. And it's a different submission to say she did not adequately consider the um, evidence of the, of the accused. But they're two separate submissions. They or are. rather, they don't need to be. But in this case, I think they have to be, given the reasons. They are. And, and I wasn't, it wasn't my intention to, to suggest in submission that, that she gave improper weight to that. Because as we can see through the various cases okay. cited by myself and my friends, that you can find the rejection of uh, a defendant's evidence in the acceptance of a complainant's evidence. There's no issue with that. But where I was going with that is that immediately following that paragraph where she says that she rejects the uh, defendant's evidence, she, gets, she then goes on to say, I don't say this simply because he denied it. I say this because the complainant's evidence is so reliable. And I say that she's so reliable because of the manner in which she disclosed, the fact that there's no animosity, the fact that there's no motive to lie. So when that to me is very revealing of how she gets there. So that shows to me that she did in fact use those as make weights because she's saying that this complainant is so reliable because she didn't have a motive to lie, because she didn't embellish it, because she was reluctant to make a report to the police or testify. Those are, are where I think it's the clearest that she um, that she in fact has been using these as make weights to say that the complainant was more credible. I, I guess the difficulty I'm having is that we can't just look at sentences in isolation. We have to look at the reasons as a whole and how she in fact treated those uh, different submissions and uh, how she analyzed the testimony. And, I'm, and I don't think we can just look at one sentence or two sentences and say that that uh, shows she she um, made an error of law that she where she clearly understood what the law was. So that's the difficulty I'm having. If that's a fair reading of the reasons as a whole, 
No, and I, I certainly appreciate that, Justice Kerry Kasanis, but that's why I say when you actually do look at the, the reasons as a whole, because she goes through a summary of the evidence, and she does an excellent job of giving a very clear and concise summary of the evidence that she's heard, but when you go through that, when she starts um, at page 106 of her reasons, that's when she starts getting into saying, well, the defense has raised this issue of credibility, of reliability, of accuracy. How do I find credibility in this case? And the first thing that she goes to, she says, how do I find reliability in this evidence? The first thing she goes to is that there's no animosity or there's no apparent animosity between the complainant. And when you look at the paragraphs that precede that, effectively all of the, the substantive analysis that she makes of the complainant's evidence are these impugned paragraphs where she says there's no animosity, there, she was reluctant to call the police, I don't find that there's evidence of, of motive to lie. That's, that's looking at it as a total. When you look at the actual portion of her decision that deals with the substantive issue of how she assesses the credibility, all of the things that she really relies on, she doesn't go into what Justice Pachaco says, the preponderance of probabilities and you know, what in the experience of, of you know, a reasonable person would seem more likely. She, she uses these weights to buttress the credibility of the complainant, saying that these are the reasons why she is so substantively credible and reliable. If, if a, a complainant or any witness's testimony is challenged very strongly on, on a certain issue, and the uh, witness, in this case the complainant, stands up well, right? There's, there's a concerted effort to undermine the uh, credibility or reliability of the testimony, and the, and, the, uh, and the witness just does a great job. Can't you, can't you refer to that? Isn't that sort of part of how you, you assess whether, you know, you, you're inclined to believe that person? Absolutely, Justice Rowe, and, and on that note, I, I, I disagree with the way that the BC Court of Appeal and Swain phrased uh, the, the, these latest cases in saying that it creates some ambiguity. With respect, I don't think that there is ambiguity because the case law has been clear, as, as my friends indicated in their uh, factum. Credibility and, and these issues have always been something that can factor into the total assessment of credibility and, and withstanding a vigorous cross-examination is something that can factor into that. But again, as Justice Pachaco said, that's not something that necessarily moves that needle into the positive. And just as Justice Moldaver was saying earlier, this is effectively the same thing as a prior consistent statement. Just because a person says the same story over and over again and doesn't change it when presented with a vigorous cross-examination doesn't necessarily give it the hallmark that it's absolutely true. So I think that there's a danger in in doing that, and, and as my friends are, are proposing at, at paragraphs 109 and 110 of their factum, saying that there, you know, there could be uh, this principle that withstanding a vigorous cross-examination on a contextual basis, obviously, but withstanding a vigorous cross-examination or findings uh, that there's no motive to lie could be used to bolster credibility. Respectfully, I think that that's a little bit dangerous because of the exact reasons why we we, we have the general prohibition against prior consistent statements. Um, the court in Alisela and Justice Pachaco quite rightly say that simply because it's repeated doesn't necessarily give us an indicator that it's true. So often though in credibility matters, we look at negative things. We, we put it in the negative. We say the witness didn't embellish. The witness 
stood up in cross-examination. Uh, despite a vigorous cross-examination, no inconsistencies were exposed, that kind of thing. We almost, and, and so therefore these are indicia that we can look to to decide overall, can we trust this witness? Can we believe this witness? Can we act on their evidence and be satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt? I just, again, I come back to just kind of the way we assess credibility, and I don't think you're asking us to reassess all that. No, I, I, I certainly am not, Justice Moldaver, but the, a phrase that a, a very learned colleague put to me when discussing this case said, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So that's the caution that I have with this, is that when we have things like absence of evidence to, to fabricate or to embellish, or absence of evidence of uh, a hostile animus or things like that, that can, that can help and assist a trial judge in making a finding that the witness is not incredible. But I don't think that that's quite the same, and that's exactly what at paragraph uh, 12 to 16, the court in Alisela says, can't then be used to say, well, because there's this absence, then that necessarily makes the, the witness more credible. Well, where do we go then? I mean, if I'm hearing you correctly, that unless there's some sort of confirmation of the witness's testimony by independent third parties, we can never rely on them. Because you will always be looking at them from a certain perspective of, you know, there's an absence of motive here, despite the fact that the defense puts all its eggs in that basket. Oh, but I can't use that to assess her, to, to bolster her credibility. I don't even know if I can assess it to consider her credibility. But, but where do we stop with this? I mean, it just, it, it really makes no sense to me at the end of the day. We size up a witness, we look at them, we listen to their evidence, we weigh it against the other evidence, and we come to our, our best, you know, view of the whole thing based on all kinds of factors. Well, and, and that's exactly what I'm saying, is that it is something to be considered, but, but these additional make-weights, as, as Justice Pachacco identifies them, can't then just be used to enhance it, because then you have a situation like we have in this case, where it appears that the, the substantial portion of the assessment of credibility are for these issues outside of it. So, But um, I'm sorry. I, I'm just going to bring you back to what she actually says. After having identified all of the submissions that defense made with respect to the credibility, she concludes, and I'm looking at page 40, at the bottom of 43 of the record and top of 44, 111 of her reasons. Her plausible explanations for not reporting to the police, her lack of embellishment, her reluctance to testify about other matters involving him, all diminish the reasonableness of any inference that she is lying about these offenses. Is that appropriate or not? That's appropriate in, in determining that there's, no, that there's no evidence before her for a motive to uh, fabricate. But when, when we look further, when we look at page 46 uh, of, the, of the record, she says it's the circumstances surrounding her disclosure, the contents of the disclosure, and the manner in which she related the disclosure that gives me the confidence and the reliability of her evidence. She, uh, she goes on and, and says that it's effectively because she has all of these other elements. But look at how she ends. Oh, I'm so sorry. Go ahead. You go ahead. 
read that sentence at the bottom of 46 in light of what I just read to you? You can't just read it on its own. And page 48, just to finish my colleague's point, when, she spe when the judge speaks of the level of confidence that, that she feels in respect of Ms. Day's testimony, she takes care to say, right in the penultimate paragraph of the, the, her reasons at page 48, that level of confidence is not reached upon hearing Ms. Day's evidence, but only after considering her evidence in light of all the other evidence at the trial, including the evidence of Mr. Gerard. It sounds like she's got it. But I, I would actually suggest that that paragraph is internally inconsistent because right before she says the level of confidence is not reached upon hearing Ms. Day's evidence, she says the failure of Mr. Gerard's uh, evidence to raise reasonable doubt is not because he denied the allegations. The level of confidence or reliability of Ms. Day's testimony is sufficiently great that when Mr. Gerard's evidence contradicted Ms. Day's, it cannot be accepted as raising reasonable doubt. And I, I see that I only have about two minutes left. So. The reason why I say that this blends into to it, when you look at, again, at the totality of her reasons, uh, at pages uh, 6, 7, 9, and 13 at tab 2 of my condensed book are all examples of where she says um, effectively that she accepts the evidence of the complainant and then turns to the defendant to see if it raises a reasonable doubt. And, and the reason why these two grounds effectively feed off each other like this is because we have this almost vicious circle of her saying, well, because there's no animus and because there's no motive of, uh, of a uh, motive to lie, uh, therefore she is very credible and she is very credible. So I therefore find that her evidence is so reliable that I cannot accept any evidence from the defense. So this is where, where we say that she, she fell into error and these are the errors identified in Lake and, and repeated again in EMW from the Nova Scotia Court of Appeal in saying that effectively the defense has been marginalized here. It's not even that it's been rejected. She has used these improper make-weights to make findings of credibility for the, the complainant that has bolstered her to be so sufficiently great that when Mr. Gerard's evidence is compared to it, even though she finds uh, that it's not inherently incredible or that it's not particularly unreasonable because it is not nearly as credible as the complainants, it can't raise a reasonable doubt. So I, I think looking at it as a whole, going right from, from about page 108 where she gets into this issue and saying, well, first, how do, I, how do I assess this credibility and go through it, notwithstanding the proper recitation of the law. And that's, again, kind of tying it all back in and saying the, the analogy from uh, Labucan she had the right roadmap. She recited the law properly. She reminded herself of the things that a judge should remind herself of. But unfortunately, when she got, when the rubber hit the road, she made a number of improper stops along the way at all of these issues in terms of finding the complainant so inherently credible and reliable that when she came to look at the evidence as a whole, she just simply said that the, the defendant could not raise a reasonable doubt when, because she was so, in fact, credible. I see I'm just about out of time. Thank you. All right. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Mr. Hughes. Thank you. Uh, Ms. McClellan, please.
Justices, all three judges of the Nova Scotia Court of Appeal agreed that the trial judge correctly stated the law. The majority also agreed that she had applied the law correctly, and they cite her repeated statements that she had considered the evidence of both main witnesses in the context of the whole of the evidence. And, you, and justices, this morning, many of those uh, quotations from the trial judge have been put to my friend. The dissenting judge, with respect, simply did not believe the trial judge when she says repeatedly that this is how she approached her task of assessing credibility and of determining whether she had a reasonable doubt on this evidence. That is apparent from the dissenting judge, and this is found at page four of the respondent's condensed book. He quotes from the trial judge. He says at, page, at paragraph 88, this reversal of the burden appears in the judge's decision when she says, the failure of Mr. Gerard's evidence to raise a reasonable doubt is not because he denied the allegations. The level of confidence and the reliability of Ms. Day's testimony is sufficiently great that when Mr. Gerard's evidence contradicted Ms. Day's, it cannot be accepted as raising a reasonable doubt. That level of confidence is not reached upon hearing Ms. Day's evidence, but only after considering her evidence in light of all the other evidence at the trial including the evidence of Mr. Gerard. The dissenting judge goes on, the second emphasized passage is incorrect. The judge had already decided that Ms. Day's evidence was reliable and raised no reasonable doubt. That premature conclusion cannot be later retrieved by a formulaic reference to all the other evidence. Well, incorrect is not the word that we would submit should be used there. There's nothing incorrect about what the trial judge has said. It is with respect simply that the dissenting judge does not take the trial judge at her word when she says she did all of these things. He simply does not believe her. And that is why I've included in the uh, condensed book the excerpt from this court in O'Brien. O'Brien, paragraph 17, just lower on that page. Trial judges are entitled to have their reasons reviewed based on what they say, not on the speculative imagination of reviewing courts. Then it goes on at paragraph 18. The trial judge was entitled to be taken at his word. There was nothing in the approach to suggest a subconscious subversion of his articulated thoughts, and the Crown would submit there's nothing here either. As well, I've included the presumption from GF from this court recently, in which this court stated, credibility findings must be assessed in light of the presumption of the correct application of the law. Let me so, just interrupt for a second because I go back to um, the dissenting opinion here. Uh, and I think you took us to, was it paragraph 79 at page 127? The judge used these negatives to conclude that Mr. Day's evidence was reliable. And it seems to me that that, with great respect, is a wrong way to uh, characterize what she did. 
she used the negatives as factors to consider, uh, none of which are conclusive, but taken cumulatively and measured against the evidence of the accused and witnesses in general, uh, and particularly those supporting him, she finds the complainant to be credible. And I mean, if that is wrong, if that is an error, then, uh, you know, we've been making mistakes for a very long time in assessing credibility. Uh, yes, that's the position of the respondent, exactly. And these aren't negative credibility findings, as it's put that way. Um, I think, as it's argued by my friend, is that there's an absence of uh, credibility detractors that are be using, made to use as a, as a make weight for credibility. But as we've said in our um, materials, our factum, the trial judge, if, as just as you said earlier today, Justice Moldaver, if she says there's a lack of embellishment, she's criticized for that, that apparently she can only use that to show why the witness was not incredible. And that the, the Nova Scotia Court of Appeal worked within the confines of KISS, they worked within the confines of Ali Soleil to say that that's, that was fine. She did adhere to that law. She used these to find she wasn't incredible. But to follow through with KISS and to say that we can use this to find someone's not incredible, but we can't use it to find that they are credible, that's not in keeping with what this court has said in Gagnon. That's not in keeping with the idea that there are these um, various uh, impressions that all intermingle, that can all influence a trial judge in why they're approaching this difficult task of why they uh, make the assessments of credibility they do. And it can't simply be that if we state it in the negative as opposed to stating it in the positive, that invalidates everything. Can I, can I ask you, let me tell you what's troubling me. There is a very thorough discussion of the credibility of the complainant. And there is a description of the accused's testimony. But when I look at the analysis of the accused's credibility or the accused's evidence, I'm left with one paragraph on page 46. It is a very... Um, minimal analysis of his evidence. So I'd like to hear you on why in this context that's sufficient. Um, thank you. I think it is sufficient, but I think there's also a bit more than that in there when we look at uh, how she's analyzed, uh, analyzed his evidence. And part of this is that the trial judge uses a similar framework to that which was used by the defense in eliciting the testimony from Mr. Gerard. So Mr. Gerard is giving what's sometimes called a simple denial or a bare denial. So as part of eliciting that from him, the defense lawyer will say, well, here is the allegation that Ms. Day said about the incident where the Mercedes was damaged. Or here's the incident uh, that she described uh, of what happened in the grape leaves when she suffered the terrible beating. Um, what's your response to that? What's your response to that? And this framework that we see that the defense used to elicit her testimony then appears in the trial judge's reasons as well. And she puts that evidence um, in her decision the same way. 
you see her saying about this incident, about that incident, and then giving his response. And she does that as well with the arguments made by the defense. So we see all of that. But when you look at what she highlighted also and what she took from the evidence of Mr. Gerard, I think it's important. In addition to summarizing at length his testimony and analyzing his content, which we see earlier on in her decision, and I would say that's at pages uh, 32 through to 36, she correctly notes that the defense evidence consisted of denials and attacks on Ms. Day's credibility. We see that from pages 35 through 36. She referenced how the other defense evidence, the evidence of Theo Gerard and Ms. DeVoe, was neutralized on cross-examination. And that's from pages 36 through to 37 of, that, uh, of the decision of the trial judge. And I'm using here the pages that are the numbering that's at the top, if, if, so I hope that's not confusing. She addressed the live issues advanced by the defense that Ms. Day had a motive to lie without requiring the defense to prove it or making it determinative of credibility. That's found at pages 40 through 43. Then she detailed the specific admissions that were made by Mr. Gerard, and I think that's important as well. That's pages 44 through 45. And when she's discussing those admissions, she mentions specifically many of the things he says. When he says that he, ad he admits that yes, throughout the relationship, she had said that he was controlling. This isn't the first time he's heard that. He uses the line that uh, seems to have infected the trial judge, and it's fairly clear why. I acted as a father and a grown man in my household when he was talking about being controlling. He admitted he accused her of infidelity. When rega in regard to the makeup uh, question, you know, the, the um, incident where he asks her to pull over to the side of the road and send him a picture to prove she's not wearing makeup, he says, yeah, it's possible I said that. He admits that the son and the daughter were a problem, and he puts it as challenged our home. Admitted upset, he admitted that he was upset that the son, her son from her previous marriage, was dating the niece. He admitted he had a temper. He admitted he cursed and called her names. He admitted that he and the daughter had both dropped phones and that he had tossed a phone. He admitted that he had seen bruises on her, which is contrary to his own evidence from Ms. DeVoe, although he's attributed it to lobster pots. And he admitted calling her over a hundred times, very many times, and described that as needless and more than necessary. So when the trial judge gets into this evidence here, I think that while it's um, certainly expressed in the paragraph that you mentioned, Justice Karakasanis, we also see that she's highlighting in her decision all of these various admissions that he has made in his evidence that are so important and would go both to his credibility and to her credibility. And I don't think there's a requirement that she has to be more explicit than that. That's all there. And then she comes to the conclusion after that that where Mr. Gerard's evidence was contradicted by other witnesses' evidence, that she accepted that of the other witnesses. In particular, she believes, she states, Ms. Day beyond a reasonable doubt. And she is allowed to do that. 
And I think, uh, and I would submit, Justice Karakasanis, that when looked at in the totality and looked at in the context of the whole, it is quite clear, as she says, that where the evidence of Mr. Gerard contradicted the evidence of Ms. Day, that on a considered um, review of all of that evidence, it simply was insufficient to raise a reasonable doubt. So I hope that does that address your, your question? Thank you. So I've touched on this in response to that question, but we would also agree with the majority of the Court of Appeal who found that the reason the decision was responsive to the cases presented. The majority of the Court of Appeal found at paragraph 52 that it was a proper analysis of the way the argument and the evidence unfolded. Now, my friend put more focus today on um, the lack of animosity that right after she's, uh, the trial judge is discussing the reliability of the decision, she's mentioning lack of animosity. But it was also responsive in that regard, and I won't take you to it right now because it's not in the condensed book, but maybe for, if you have the opportunity. In the appellant's record at tab 47, page 55, and it says on that um, page, Ms. Mills' submission, that was the Crown Attorney, it's not, it's actually Mr. Hutchinson, who was the defense lawyer at trial. And he's talking about the evidence of Ms. Day, and he says at line uh, 11, page 55 of tab 47, there was certainly a great deal of disdain upon her part towards Mr. Gerard, and certainly that's a lens through which the court now has to consider her evidence. So yet again, the trial judge is responding there to something that was put to her by defense counsel, and now she's being criticized for it. In the same way, the decision was responsive about the issue of motive to lie. Motive to lie was described by the Nova Scotia Court of Appeal as the burning issue raised by the defense in this appeal. This was apparent in both the way it was presented by the defense and in the evidence of Mr. Gerard. And I would take the court now to our condensed book at tab 7. In regard to a question or an objection, sorry, on a brown and done basis. Defense counsel, Mr. Hutchinson, and this is tab seven, page 30 states to the court, they were put to the complainant, your honor, in cross-examination that there was a derogatory comment made by Mr. Gerard towards the daughter, which in turn then permeated back to Lisa Day. And it was suggested to her on cross-examination that that was foundation of the complaint to the police. So in that excerpt, at page 30 of the condensed book, the defense counsel trial is referring to this allegation of motive to lie as the very foundation of the charges that are before the court. The trial judge says, okay, you can put the question to him. And he says, and a derogatory comment was made by yourself. Answer, yes, I made, I told her a derogatory comment that I had heard about her mother. And it went right back to her mother and within 24 hours, the police were at my door with a list of charges. So that's what I've referred to in my materials as the specific motive to lie. 
But there's also this more general evidence that throughout the course of their relationship, Ms. Day was threatening to take Mr. Gerard's daughter away from him, that she was threatening to take him to court. And there's this suggestion that this is now the acts of a vindictive woman who's acting on her long-festering threat to ruin Mr. Gerard's life. We see this in the next page, 31 from the evidence. Line 13, it went cold turkey. She would throw things in my face where maybe I should have you charged and I could put you to court. I would go leave the house. I would go to my camp. I had a camp and one time she actually called the police on me there. They went back. She tried to say I was back there. I was going to commit suicide because I had a firearm with me because it was partridge season. Then on the next page of the condensed book 32, this is another example from the direct examination. If she didn't get her way, well, it would be she could take my daughter. She could do what she wants. That's at lines 9 and 10. The next page, page 33 of the condensed book, now we're into the cross-examination, and Mr. Gerard is still giving this evidence of what is the central theory of the defense. And this is in regard to the Mercedes incident at line 9. No, she accused me of that because, again, like I said, we were arguing, and she'd just throw anything out there. She just, I'll take you to court and you won't see your kid, and look, she can say what she wants, like she just says stuff. She just says stuff when she gets mad, yeah. When she gets mad, and so when I got mad sometimes, I would say things, yeah. Then the next page, he returns in his cross-examination to the incident of the camp, where he says she called the police on him with no basis to say she was concerned he would commit suicide. At line 17, he says, and she accused me of something then. I don't know what it was. So the majority is certainly correct when they say this was a burning issue that the trial judge was required to deal with. As Justice Moldaver said today, the defense had put all their eggs in this basket. It was the central theory of the defense. Motive to lie was squarely before the court, and it had to be addressed. The majority distinguished this case from Cook, and the dissent relies on that. But as the majority said, they aren't similar cases. In Cook, the Crown had conceded that the motive to lie had been misused, and there's not a great deal of discussion, therefore, about the, how it was problematic in Cook. And also in Cook, they noted, or in distinguishing Cook, the majority noted that Neutral factors in that case, such as a lack of embellishment, had been used to bolster insupportable credibility findings. So in Cook, the credibility findings were insupportable. There is nothing insupportable about the credibility findings made in this case. The court then looked at Swain, a decision of the British Columbia Court of Appeal, which described Cook and two other cases it mentions as causing some ambiguity in the law. And that's just found at our condensed book, page 37. Notwithstanding some recent ambiguity in the case law, R.V. Cook, R.V.A.S., R.V.S.H., and this is the majority there at page 37 quoting from Swain, it has been held that a trier of fact is entitled to consider an absence of evidence of motive to fabricate when assessing a complainant's credibility. 
And the key thing is, just don't fall into certain traps. And the Nova Scotia Court of Appeal agreed with the British Columbia Court of Appeal in Swain and noted that those risks were that you treat the evidence as entirely determinative of the credibility of the complainant, that you equate no evidence of a motive to lie with no actual motive to lie, or that you require the defense to prove that there was no motive to lie. And the Nova Scotia Court of Appeal concludes at paragraph 65, found on page 40 of our condensed book, that none of those risks were encountered in this case. She did not make it entirely dispositive of her credibility findings. She did not switch the burden to Mr. Gerard. And she made it quite clear that she was unwilling to draw the inference from the evidence, not saying that there was absolutely no, no motive to lie. And my friend seems to be relying on proximity of sentences in this decision. Well, she talks about motive to lie, and then she mentions that she doesn't find any reasonable doubt in the evidence of Ms. Day. But that's not how we read a decision. We don't say because this sentence is proximate to that sentence. There's no therefore. She never says, I find I'm unwilling to draw the inference. Therefore, I find her credible. It's quite clear throughout all of her decision why she is finding her credible, and it is not solely on the basis there was no motive to lie. Is a fair comment to say that embellishment or exaggeration can be a factor in assessing the, an issue of motive? In other words, does kind of the way human beings react and do things if someone is exaggerating, if someone is embellishing, and the issue is did they have a motive to lie, I would have thought it is fair game to look at that. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be satisfied that they are lying, but surely they are factors that, as I say, human experience suggests go one goes with the other, it's, it's, or it can go with the other. It certainly does. And as the majority found, and they worked within the confines of KISS, and they found, look, she only considers lack of embellishment in regard to whether or not I'm finding a motive to lie. And when you see where she's considering lack of embellishments, it's discussed with a motive to lie. But certainly, that's entirely relevant to this defense that was put forward of motive to lie. To say she lacked embellishment, of course that's relevant. One would expect, if she is acting on this threat that she's made for years, that she's going to be going in there and she's going to be delighted to finally be testifying against Mr. Gerard, as opposed to hesitant. She is going... It depends on how clever you are. <laughs> well, it would certainly be, I think, you know, you'd be playing quite a long game if you... Uh, went from initially just going to the police because you want information and you make an anonymous complaint and then the next time you go to the police you just want a peace bond so you only give a certain amount you don't give as detailed a statement because you just want him to leave you alone and then the next time you go to the police it's only because another witness has been interviewed and as a result you've been called back in 
And in that statement, you give more evidence, a more fulsome statement. So certainly in regard to the reliance on the reporting to the police, I think that's why that's so relevant. You know, you'd be playing a very long game if you were planning to do all of that, to put in motion your lie about Mr. Gerard. But that also has an incredible ring of truth to it. So to say maybe that that can only go to why you're finding her incredible as opposed to why you're finding her credible. This is why I say that's an artificial distinction. It also has that ring of truth. Because you hear in the evidence how they've struggled over the years to form a family. They've had a child through surrogacy. They've moved to various different places, but then they eventually build their home. And his father is across the road, and his brother's down the hill. That's his home. That's his place. She is going to be blowing up her life that she has struggled so hard for, that they both testified they worked towards when she's giving this statement about him and the domestic abuse. And she testified, as the trial judge noted, that she was scared. She was worried if he, took, she took, if he got his guns, had his guns taken away, the reaction he'd have to that, because he was a hunter. And she was also scared he had made these threats to kill her, to kill her son. And I think she puts it in the evidence, I didn't want to find out. I didn't want to find out if he'd act on that. So if she is lacking embellishment in her testimony, if she is, um, so say the judge had put it this way, she testified clearly, she was careful in her answers. She was straightforward, she was forthright. There would be no problem with that. It can't be the law that because it's stated in the negative as a lack of embellishment, that that's somehow a make weight for credibility. It's not. And again, I bring this court back to Gagnon, the complex intermingling of impressions. So while you're considering motive to lie and you're looking at her evidence, you're going to make conclusions about her credibility. That's only natural. And that's what was done here. And those were proper considerations, either as the Nova Scotia Court of Appeal majority considered them in the confines created by KISS, which wasn't binding, of course, on the Nova Scotia Court of Appeal. It's a decision of the Ontario Court of Appeal. But whether you work within those confines or whether this court takes this opportunity to say, no, those artificial distinctions, they don't keep and they're not in the spirit of Gagnon. Does that address, Justice Moldaver, what you were, your question? Yes, thank, thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm running short on time, so I won't take you through them, but I think we've heard of it all, them all today. Throughout her decision, pages 35, pages 42, pages 46, pages 48, and these are found in my condensed book um, at tab 4. I've included all the various times in her decision that Judge Whalen says, I have considered the evidence of Mr. Gerard in the context of the evidence of the whole. I have considered the evidence of Ms. Day in the context of the evidence of the whole. I made no conclusion about the reliability or the credibility or the believability of her evidence until such time as I considered it within the context of the whole of the evidence. 
those multiple examples that have been read to my friend today and that we've seen throughout the decision make it clear that the burden of proof was never switched to Mr. Gerard. He was never required to prove everything. And furthermore, believing the complainant beyond a reasonable doubt does not equate to picking a side. It's not the same thing as saying, I prefer her evidence, and therefore, as a necessary corollary, and this was a bit discussed in Van Deventer, the case relied on by my friend from Saskatchewan Court of Appeal, as a necessary corollary, I must find him to be guilty. That's different. She didn't do that. She goes through and synthesizes all of the evidence that is before her and makes a determination on the basis of that that she believes the complainant beyond a reasonable doubt. And she relies on Jorah, but I've included in our condensed book JJRD and DR from the Ontario Court of Appeal and the British Columbia Court of Appeal in Redden, found at page 21 of our book of authorities, where they say that a court does not assess the evidence of the accused in isolation. There will be cases where the, in, the defense is rejected based on a considered and reasoned acceptance beyond a reasonable doubt of the truth of conflicting credible evidence. This does not mean that the trial judge is erroneously chosen between competing narratives, simply preferring one to the other. To do so would constitute reversible error. Rather, it represents a finding that the testimony of the accused cannot stand in light of the cogency of other evidence. That's simply what happened here. After synthesizing all the evidence, looking at it all, she believed Ms. Day beyond a reasonable doubt, which she was entirely entitled to do. Perfect timing, Ms. McClellan. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. <clears throat> Mr. Hughes, do you have any reply? The, the, the issue that I wanted to raise in reply is I think we're losing the distinction between proof of an absence of motive to lie and absence of evidence of a motive to lie. And I, I apologize that I, the name of the case cited by my friend is escaping me, but early in the decision, the court makes a very clear distinction saying that proof of an absence of evidence uh, of motive to fabricate is something that a trial judge can use to bolster credibility. So an actual finding that there is no motive uh, to lie or to fabricate is something that a trial judge can use to bolster credibility and no issue is taken with that. That court then goes on to say, however, absence of evidence of a motive to fabricate is just one thing that can be taken into consideration in the, the factual matrix uh, and the constellation of considerations in determining that. I think, And I think that that's one thing that we're just kind of losing sight from here because it it seems to me that we're, we're equating the absence of evidence of a motive to fabricate with proof that there is no motive to fabricate. I mean, if we accept that the first is stronger, obviously, than the second, you're not disputing, are you, that they're both factors, one, one weaker than the other? Certainly. I, I would absolutely agree, Justice Karakasanis, that they are both factors, but I, I agree uh, with Justice Pachaco in saying that effectively the, the latter can only move the needle so far. It can't then go into the positive. Effectively, it stays in the negative column. But why, why do you say it has to stay in the negative column? 
Well, that, that comes back to the, that uh, phrase that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So if, if we have a trial judge saying that there's no evidence before uh, her, that there's a motive to lie, that's something that can say there's no negative detractor here. But a simple absence of evidence of a motive to lie isn't then something that a judge can turn around and say, well, because there's no evidence of a motive to lie before me, that therefore makes this witness more credible. So I think that's the distinction, and that's why if there is an actual positive finding that there's no motive to, to fabricate, then that would be acceptable in saying, because I find as a fact that there is no motive to lie or there's no motive to fabricate, that then moves into the positive column. Um, I hope, does that answer your question, Justice Garrick-Sanis? Uh, that's really all I wanted to say in terms of reply because I, I think that that's a, a distinction that's important here. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for your submissions. The court is going to retire and we would ask counsel to remain in the court. Thank you. Well, let me begin by thanking both counsel for your very able and helpful submissions. The court is grateful to both of you. We have been able to resolve the decision and I will deliver the judgment uh, for the court. Uh, Mr. Gerard appeals his 13 domestic violence related convictions to this court as of right based upon a dissenting opinion at the Nova Scotia uh, Court of Appeal. A majority of the Court of Appeal rejected his submissions that the trial judge erred both in her application of RVWD and her assessment of the complainant's credibility. Uh, we would dismiss the appeal. On the first issue, the trial judge instructed herself correctly on the WD test and its application. It is immaterial that the trial judge assessed the complainant's credibility before the accused. This does not automatically demonstrate that she reversed the burden of proof, R.V. Verudin. Rather, the trial judge's reasons demonstrates that she did not evaluate the complainant's evidence in isolation, but properly tested it against the evidence of other witnesses, including the accused, and offered cogent reasons for finding that the complainant's evidence was credible without improperly marginalizing that of Mr. Gerard or any, other any of the other witnesses. Trial judge's reasons must be read generously as a whole and with the presumption that the judge knows the law, RVGF, 
we see no reason to interfere with her analysis. On the second issue, we do not accept Mr. Gerard's submission that the trial judge made improper credibility findings about the complainant regarding lack of motive to lie, lack of embellishment, and reluctance to report to the police and testify. The judge properly considered each of these factors in assessing the complainant's credibility as a direct response to Mr. Gerard's defense at trial, namely that the complainant had long threatened to report him to the police and finally followed through with this threat by fabricating allegations because he made a derogatory comment about her to her daughter. Put another way, he alleged that she had a motive to lie and was in fact lying. Credibility findings are owed significant deference on appeal, GF. The trial judge's reasons were responsive to live issues at trial raised by Mr. Gerard and reveal no error justifying intervention. Two of these factors warrant a few additional comments. Lack of evidence of a complainant's motive to lie may be relevant in assessing credibility, particularly where the suggestion is raised by the defense, R.V. Sterling, R.V. Ignacio. Absence of evidence of motive to lie or the existence of evidence disproving a particular motive to lie is a common sense factor that suggests a witness may be more truthful because they do not have reason to lie. That said, when considering this factor, trial judges must be alive to two risks. One, the absence of evidence that the complainant has a motive to lie, that is that there is no evidence either way, cannot be equated with evidence disproving a particular motive to lie, that is evidence establishes that the motive does not exist, as the latter requires evidence and is therefore a stronger indication of credibility. Neither is conclusive in a credibility analysis. And two, the burden of proof cannot be reversed by requiring the accused to demonstrate that the complainant has a motive to lie or explain why a complainant has made uh, the allegations R.V. Swain. Lack of embellishment may also be relevant in assessing a complainant's credibility and often arises in response to suggestions that the complainant has a motive to lie. But unlike absence of evidence of a motive to lie or the existence of evidence disproving a particular motive to lie, lack of embellishment is not an indicator that a witness is more likely telling the truth because both truthful and dishonest accounts can be free of exaggeration or embellishment. Lack of embellishment cannot be used to bolster the complainant's credibility. It simply does not weigh against it. It may, however, be considered as a factor in assessing whether or not the witness had a motive to lie. For these reasons, we would dismiss the appeal. Thank you very much.